seems uncertain and looks not to be what we envisioned it would be, we can begin to question the foundation upon which we stand. Are our beliefs correct? Incorrect? Is our hope in vain? What is true? What can we People are starting to question the faith. Doubts are being raised. Many who once put their confidence in the gospel are starting to have their security in Christ shaken. Popular and yet erroneous teachers have come on the scene. Some are questioning the authority of the teaching of the apostles, the original 12 disciples. Others challenge the certainty of Christ's second coming. People are asking, what's true anymore? How do we know? How do we know if the gospel, this good news we are basing our lives on, 
is real, is reliable, is certain. If you have those Bibles open, and keep them open, and if you closed it, open right back up to where you were, because Peter tells us three important things in answer to this question. Verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. My friends, more than 2,000 years later, this story about Jesus we gather around every Sunday isn't make-believe. Something made up by the disciples. They saw it. They lived it for themselves. Isn't it interesting that Peter doesn't write here about the resurrection appearances? Don't you find it fascinating that Peter doesn't choose to talk about, let's say, the moment when Jesus returned to heaven and the angel appeared to all of them and declared, do you remember this? The angel appeared as Jesus was ascending and said the same, Jesus would return the same way that he ascended into heaven. That's not what Peter brings up here. Instead, Peter refers, if you don't recognize it, to an event we call the transfiguration of Jesus. We find it recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you don't remember this, Jesus goes up the mountain. He takes along Peter, James, and John. And as Jesus stands there before them, Moses and Elijah suddenly appear and start talking with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured. His clothes, we're told, become more radiant and white than anything they've ever seen. But understand something. It wasn't just his appearance that had changed. Jesus was transfigured, transformed. The veil of his humanity was lifted, and he was seen fully and completely in that moment for who he is. The Lord of all creation, the Savior of all people, the King of all kings. Why does Peter talk about this moment above all others? Because in this one brief shining moment, is a glimpse of Jesus as all creation will see him when he comes again. The transfiguration itself, the events on that mountain, were a picture of Jesus wrapped in the same glory he'll have when he returns. How do we know Jesus wasn't just a godly man who was resurrected like Lazarus or ascended into heaven like Elijah? How do we know Jesus is the Son of God, the one whom before every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the one who will return, as we just confessed, to judge the heavens and the earth, the one who will complete what he started in bringing the kingdom of God, the fullness of its power to reconcile all that is broken, to redeem all that is lost, to resurrect all that is dead. As the years go by, as the decades pass, as the centuries pile up, how do we know this isn't just some pipe dream, some wishful thinking, some big misunderstanding? Peter starts by saying this, because he got to see it. He was there. Peter got a foretaste of what is to come. He was an eyewitness of the glory Jesus will demonstrate when he returns at the end of time. Peter was a witness in the present of what will be revealed in the future. Based on what he saw then, Peter assures the church, us, of what we will all see later. 
Interestingly, John, by the way, who was also there, in a different way, in a much bigger way, makes the same claim in, as an eyewitness in his first letter to the church. In the very start of his letter, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Beloved, our story, the faith we have been given, is based on eyewitness testimony. Peter and John write as ones who saw it for themselves. Isn't that the point of being an eyewitness? You didn't get it from hearsay. You saw it yourself. And, and, and in case we, we entertain, well, maybe they were delusional. Maybe they made it up. Maybe they, there, was, there was incentive for them. I mean, after all, look at how famous they are now. The first disciples had no selfish motive for making these claims. They gained no wealth, no security, no power in sharing what they saw. In fact, they lived in poverty. They were often on the run. Read the book of Acts. They were often abused, persecuted, beaten, arrested. Many of them paid for their testimony with their lives. Peter himself, and this is what makes his words here all the more powerful for those who first received it, Peter himself is about to be executed by Nero. The emperor Nero, he's about to be executed for his refusal to recant on what he witnessed. The stories handed down in the four Gospels, the stories of Jesus handed down in the four Gospels are not myths or legends based on fantasy. They are eyewitness testimony written in the blood of those who willingly gave their lives for the sake of what they saw. We were there. We saw it, Peter writes. How do we know it's true? Peter doesn't stop there. He writes, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. In other words, Peter is telling us, we didn't interpret it. God explained it. We didn't make this stuff up. We saw it firsthand. But how do we know that that's not just Peter's take on things? How did any of them know what to learn about Jesus from that moment of transfiguration? And the answer is, Peter writes, because God spoke. They heard God's voice. God said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Think about it. Hear this. Peter and the rest didn't decide or work out the meaning of all this for themselves. God told them. God the Father, in that moment, on that mountain, spoke words directly out of Psalm 2 in reference to Jesus that day. And if you were to go and open up to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 speaks of the way the Messiah would eventually rule all the nations of the world. Listen to this excerpt from Psalm 2, which is what God is saying about Jesus. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Peter wants to make it clear, though, as he goes on, that God speaking on that mountain in that moment wasn't an isolated incident. Peter is affirming what he saw on that mountain that day as a foretaste of what was foretold by the prophets. 
Listen as he continues to say, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God our Father continues to speak through the prophets. They spoke from God, Peter writes, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This phrase, carried along, was used to describe how the wind moves a boat by way of a sail. In other words, each of the biblical authors, including the prophets, wrote in their own personality, wrote in their own style, wrote their own experiential learnings. Each contributor to the Bible that we have indeed wrote what they wanted to write in their own words. However, ultimately it was the Spirit's directional pull and guidance that inspired the content, the teachings, the character, the insight, the prophecy of what they wrote. Therefore, their words were exactly what God wanted them to think and write. So their words are nothing less than the Lord speaking through them. The particular choice of words that Peter uses here to describe the writing of the Bible, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, I think it provides for us a greater understanding as to why, on the one hand, have you ever noticed this? Why, on the one hand, we can read books of the Bible and see that each book might read a bit differently based on the differences of the authors. And yet, on the other hand, we can acknowledge, if you've ever read the whole Bible, and this is why at some point in your life you should read the whole Bible, we can acknowledge, on the other hand, the unbelievable level of consistency of one story of grace, love, and redemption, provided in the midst of various voices and backgrounds and details. My friends, If you're not getting this, if it's getting a little bit too heavy, what Peter's trying to bring home is we don't have to figure out for ourselves the meaning of what God is doing. The Lord gives us his word so we can understand, so we can hear him speak through our experiences. Notice here, as Peter writes, this is so critical, how Peter references in his writing both his experience and what is in the Bible. Both work in tandem when it comes to hearing and understanding God. Both should align as we seek to be confident about what God is saying and doing in our lives. Peter talks about his experience, what he saw, what he heard, but he also talks about the scriptures, what the scriptures say. The two have to be held together to hear what God is saying and to know what God is telling us to do. How do we know that what we believe is true? How do we confirm the certainty of our faith in what God has done and continues to do? Because not only were Peter and the disciples eyewitnesses of Jesus' deeds and words, their testimony also lines up exactly with what the scriptures anticipated and predicted. And this is why when you read the Gospels, they keep looking back. They keep saying, this is what was predicted. This is what was anticipated. We know Because they were there. They saw it. We have eyewitness testimony. We know because God interpreted it. They didn't have to figure it out for themselves. We don't either. God tells us who he is, what he's doing. But thirdly, how do we know it's true? Because disciples like Peter wrote it down. And I will make every effort to see, this is his words, Peter, right here. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. 
don't know if you've ever had this experience in your life yet. You will potentially at some point. But handling someone else's estate, their legacy, can be intimidating, right? Handling else, someone else's estate, their legacy, can be intimidating. It's a lot easier, isn't it, if they have written a will, right? A properly written will will make that person's wishes unambiguously clear, correct? I mean, once they've left us, right, when we struggle with what to do and how to handle their estate, if they have a written will, we can go back to exactly what they told us, what to hold on to, and what to let go of. Peter knows he doesn't have much time left. He's going to die soon. Jesus, long, long ago, told him that this day would come, and he sees the writing on the wall. And he's been given the charge by Jesus from that moment when he was with Christ till the, to, the, to the birth of the church at Pentecost to where he is today. He was given the charge by Jesus to share what he has learned, what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's been taught. And here, Peter seeks to pass the baton of faith. One day, Peter won't be here anymore. And when people begin to question or doubt who Jesus is, what actually happened, what to expect in the future, Peter wants to make sure those who come after him will not have any trouble remembering what's true, what's certain when he's gone. So he writes it all down. He and the other witnesses wrote it down. They wrote down what's true so we don't forget it. The question remains, once we know the faith we have been given is reliable, that the gospel we believe in and depend upon is true, how do we hold on to? How do we not lose sight of what we have received, the truth of Christ? As, as, as I said earlier, as we continue to wait and walk by faith until Jesus returns or brings us home. And in this passage, Peter offers us two related words of advice, a general word to the wise and then a more specific word of instruction. The first thing is we have to refresh our memory on a regular basis. Listen to what Peter writes at the very start of this passage. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you, knew, you now have, I think it right to refresh your memory. All of us, regardless of our age, are used to computers now. We may not like them, but we're used to them. Desktops, laptops, cell phones, right? Computers. If you don't know something about computers, let me tell you a little thing about memory refresh. Memory refresh in any computer is the process of periodically reading information from an area of the computer's memory and immediately rewriting that information to the same area without modification. Why is this done? To preserve that information. Because as time passes, the charges in the computer's memory, the memory cells leak away. And if a refresh does not occur, if the memory is not recharged, the stored data will disappear in a few milliseconds and be lost. Now, Peter wasn't thinking of computers when he wrote these words. He was thinking about us. We are a forgetful people. Names, dates, details, we forget. Ideas we had, we forget. Promises we made, we forget. 
Lessons we learned, advice we were given, people we knew, we forget. We are like the computers we create. Our memory cells leak. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't get any better with age. So Peter tells us, when it comes to the faith we have been given, the truth in which we have been established, we need to refresh our memory. Think of our children. Do we just give them information once? Do we teach them things and never repeat ourselves again? Boy, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. We repeat ourselves constantly. We often have them repeat back what they heard or show us what they learned. Why? Because repetition is the key to creating a groove, to establishing a rhythm, to instilling discipline, fostering a practice that becomes instinctive, natural for us. In the very first verses of this passage, Peter uses three variations of the word remember. But his encouragement to us is more than a mental exercise. It's more than informational recall. When it comes to the truth of Christ, Peter wants us to bring it to mind. And what that means is that for the truth of and about Jesus to inform our entire being, to shape our emotions, our will, and our behavior, as well as our intellect. Example. How many of us remember we are forgiven because Jesus died for our sins? Raise your hand if you remember that. If I don't see your hand up, you need to talk to me after this service. <laughs> How many of us remember we are forgiven because Jesus died for our sins? Your hands are up. That's great. Yet how many of us still find ourselves plagued by feelings of guilt and worry in our lives? How many of us still direct our will toward pleasing God in order to be forgiven? Raise your hand. <laughs> and how many of us, despite what we remember, still behave in an unforgiving manner toward others? See? There is a difference between just remembering I am forgiven because Jesus died for my sins and bringing that truth to mind such that my nature is changed where the forgiveness I have in Christ dictates how I feel, how I react to things, where Jesus' forgiveness changes my will from being resentful and bitter and informs my behavior to be forgiving of others. Refreshing our memory, bringing what's true to mind, reviewing why it's true, the benefits of remembering the benefits of living out of the truth, as well as the consequences of ignoring it, reorients how we live. It brings more stability, more security, more growth towards maturity into our life. So how do we refresh our memory? Through the patterns and habits of worship. How do we refresh our memory? Through the patterns and habits of worship. Memory refresh is the reason why we gather together on Sunday morning. 
When you look through, and I don't know if you do in your bulletin, if you just maybe glance at it, maybe it's like a checklist, like you're crossing out, well, we did that, great, we did that, all right, we're on task here. That's not why this is here. This is here not as like a program. This is here to put in front of us, in case we forget, to refresh what are the patterns and habits of worship in our life supposed to look like. The rituals that we have, and many of us think ritual is a bad word. We all have rituals. You do something again and again, it becomes a ritual. We have rituals in our worship that only become bad if we just go through the motions, if we just do them mindlessly. But if we're mindful of why we do what we do, it shapes, it refreshes the orientation of our lives. It reminds us of the rhythm of grace. It teaches us how to live our lives to the rhythm of grace. That's what Sunday morning is about. If you come to Sunday morning and think it's like a gas station, fill you up and then go out and get depleted and come back and fill up again, you're missing the point of why God calls his people together. We're called together to be reoriented. So not just, as I often say at the end of our service, our life of worship continues to be reminded of what the rhythm of grace looks like and then to go and live out of that rhythm of grace. And that's why, and this looks like different things to different people, so I'm not singling anybody out. When we worship together like this or two or more gathered in, in the name of Christ, full participation rather than stoic observation is so crucial. And for those of us from our Norwegian Lutheran tradition or whatever, whatever background you want to claim, stoicism is not a virtue. God's not saying, good for you, you know how to keep your mouth closed when everyone else is singing. Good for you, you don't raise your hands because we wouldn't want that. Good for you, you don't pray out loud because that just would be unseemly. Full participation. And again, I want you to hear this. That looks different for different people. Some people are more introverted, some people are more extroverted. It doesn't have to all be the same. The key is participation. And we all know the difference between participating and sitting in the stands. Right? Don't just go through the motions. That's how we refresh our memory. Be present in whatever way you're worshiping the Lord. And in whatever way God is showing up, be fully present, be mindful. This is why in the history of the faith, God gave the people the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration, if you've ever been a part of a Passover service, the whole point of the Passover service is not just to remember, but it's the liturgy, the ritual of it is that we would identify with, share with what happened. The whole idea is that it's happening again. We are there. It wasn't them and now it's us. We are there as God passes over. As the blood is put on the door frames of the house as a sign of protection. We come to this meal in just a few moments. This can become an empty ritual where we just come and get bread and put it in the cup and move on. But Jesus tells us it's more than that. Do this in remembrance of me. And he doesn't mean intellectually just remember, hey, I died for your sins. Paul helps us out with that, that we remember and proclaim it. If you come and receive the forgiveness of Christ, then let it change how you're feeling about your life, what's going on right now. Let it transform your will where your heart is hard, heart is, heart is hard, where you're bitter and resentful. Let that go. Let it, when you receive, that's why I said last week, if you were here, how would it shape your interactions with people outside these doors is whenever you engage someone, grocery store, gas station, wherever it is you go, you, and you in, engaging that person, 
imagined you were serving them communion? How would that fundamentally shift how you would look at that person, how you would treat that person, how you would understand your connection, what's going on with that person? If you look at this order of worship, what's the rhythm of grace that's on here? Have you ever even noticed this? This is, and this is not unique to grace. We have our own flavor, but the Sunday flow, what we're called, we're called together by God. The call to worship, we're called together. We're gathered, we sing, we pray, we settle down, right? We're blessed. We're blessed by the word. We're blessed by the sacrament. And then we're sent. And when we're sent, we're sent to repeat. Rinse and repeat. Call. We're being called out there. We're being gathered with people who we may not even realize God's brought into our midst. And God seeks to bless us in the gathering with those we expect and those we don't. And in that blessing where God's word will come, his presence will come, the presence of the Spirit What happens? Eventually we're sent to more and more. That's the the rhythm of grace that you see in the book of Acts. Called, gathered, blessed, sent. So let me ask you, practically, to, to reflect how can you, you, be more mindful while you are here? If you're here for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, how can you be more mindful when you're here? How can you participate more fully? rather than just observe. And let me ask you this. What is one place, just one, one aspect of your daily routine? You all, we all have rituals. What's one aspect of your daily ritual and rhythm where you can incorporate a little more spiritual refresh? Where you can carry what happens, what this is about, what's shaping us here, out there. My friends, just to give you some quick examples, maybe to, to get you to look at it differently, this Spiritual refresh, what I've just been talking about, this is the purpose of a quiet time. This is the purpose of a quiet time. This is why we say grace before meals. This is why we make the sign of the cross before we enter someplace or leave it. Because this is a way of refreshing us to the truth, the truth of Christ that shapes and guides our lives. Peter gives us a second, as I said, more specific word of instruction. He writes this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Hear it. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter tells us quite simply to return to the word, the scriptures, the Bible again and again. Peter uses here, and he'll use it a lot in the remainder of this letter, the image of the interplay of light and dark. The darkness that Peter refers to is a world without God, a world that does not know, in some cases a world that does not want to know God. Yes, Jesus may have lived, died, risen and ascended. Yes, a day will dawn when Christ will return, a day when we will finally and fully know all things as we have been known. That's what Peter's referring to when he mentions that beautiful phrase of the morning star rising in our hearts. But until that day... We live in a world full of darkness. Darkness, full of lies, full of voices around us speaking contrary to what is true, assuring us we can live however we want. We can treat each other however we please without consequences. The world is still a dark place, a dangerous place, full of rebellious schemes and evil deeds, born of minds purported to be open, but really that are closed. 
of hearts seeking to be hopeful and free, but ending up hardened and hopeless to what is right, good, and true. Still through it all, Peter assures us, there is a light shining in all our darkness, a light that can illuminate our paths, refresh our memories, and teach us what we should believe and do, and can stir and empower us to follow and obey, and that light is the Bible, the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as Peter directs us, my friends, we need to heed that word. We need to pay attention to it. Therefore, it's fitting to ask ourselves this morning, if this is indeed our practice, are we paying attention to the word of God? Are we reading, studying, reflecting on God's word to us on a regular, consistent basis? basis. And I know I bring this up, but I bring it up because it's a central call out of the scriptures themselves. If we're not regularly, consistently paying attention to the word of God, we're putting ourselves not in a place of safety, but of great risk. To purposefully or accidentally distance ourselves from reading and hearing the word of God leaves us open to forgetfulness and error. We won't grow towards a deeper understanding and relationship with Jesus. If you're not experiencing a deeper understanding and relationship with Jesus, ask yourself, are you paying attention to the word of God? We have many, many people today who are solely trying to engage Christ on their experience alone. And Peter invokes his experience. Experience is wonderful and it's valid, but it needs to go in tandem with the word of God. If we're not paying attention to the word of God, we won't mature towards a better understanding of ourselves. We won't mature towards a greater love for God and for our neighbors. All of us who raised our hands, there's an, a very simple reason why we're remembering, but it's not changing our feelings, our will, and our behavior. Because we're not paying attention to the Word of God. If we're not paying attention to the Word of God, we won't gravitate towards a clear discernment and practice between right and wrong. We'll actually find ourselves away from it. If you find yourself, and there's gray in this world, but if you find that the majority of what you encounter in this world is gray, you just don't know what to do. You don't know what's right and wrong anymore. You know, it seems like it could be either way. Pay attention to the word of God. There's gray in this world, but there's not as much gray as we keep saying there is. This, this is why, for me, the Bible is at the heart of our preaching here at Grace. It's, it's why we always aim to unfold what God has to say to us through his word rather than just tell you what we would like to say. Oh, I got things to say. And I got to catch myself because it's very easy. This is one of the biggest temptations of this thing is simply to tell you what I want to say. And I want you to know I wrestle before and afterwards. Did I get in the way of what you were trying to say? And let me tell you the first and foremost place that that starts. If I'm not paying attention to the word of God, then I am dangerous up here. Scary dangerous. Run, hide, dangerous. My friends, we are blessed. We are blessed to have easy access to, 
to hold in our hands. Pick up that Bible that's in the pew if you don't have one with you today. You are blessed to have easy access to, to hold in your hand, to be free. We live in a country where you are free to meditate on the very word of God written by human authors. It's more than, the number is higher than you would believe of places in which this book is outlawed. Reading it, knowing it, talking about it will get you killed. We are blessed. We have no such restriction or fear, and yet it sits unopened, unread. This is the central reason the Holy Spirit moved people to write the scriptures, so that we might return to them again and again, remembering the truth of our salvation, recalling and living out of the promises of Jesus Christ, as well as being stirred and empowered to reveal God's kingdom in all we say and do. What are we saying about the legacy of those who have gone before us, who gave their life, their blood, to give us these scriptures if it sits unopened and unread? My friends, are we paying attention to God's word for us? For God's word to us, are we in the scriptures? We've put it in the bulletin. I've mentioned it a couple of times. We have a a daily Bible reading plan here at Grace. If you don't have a regular plan to read the Bible, it's listed here all the way through Easter. So you can read it with us. Drew and myself do a podcast eight to ten minutes every day where we just comment on one of the three scriptures here. If you follow this for two years, you'll read through the whole Bible. And, we, and that podcast is intended to create conversation. And if we're all reading it together, when you meet someone you know or someone you don't, you can, you can talk about because you were reading the same scriptures that morning. There's other Bible reading plans. It's great. Do you have one? Are you in the Word? Are you paying attention to the Word of God? We have here at Grace a great study, a covenant study. It's the covenant Bible study. It, it's broken up into three eight-week sessions because many of us have busy lives. You can take it in any order where you can get through the whole of the story of Scripture so you can learn how to better understand and pay attention to the Word of God. It's there. Are you making time for that if you are one who says, I don't know how to read the Bible. I've never been through the whole Bible. And, and beyond those, it's this simple and yet this challenging. Invite your spouse Invite a friend. Get to know someone in this community who you don't know by being in the Word together. To get together for, to, for no other purpose than to talk about the sermon or read a book of the Bible together. And when you do that, don't say, oh, I wouldn't even know where to start. Just open it up and read it. Ask questions. Seek answers together. Learn and grow in your understanding together. Don't worry about what you don't know. Just pay attention to it and see what God will show you, what God will teach you in going, engaging the word of God together. Memory refresh and paying attention to the word of God. How do we hold on to the truth that we have been given? To a fellowship discouraged in the midst of what is before them to a community starting to doubt what they believe is true, in the rise of teachers who are telling the people that what they think they want to hear. Peter seeks to point us back to what we once knew, to what is certain and true. Jesus came and lived with us. He pointed us to the way, the truth, and life of the Father. He revealed and gave us the power and authority of the kingdom of God. Christ died for us, 
Christ was risen. Christ ascended into heaven. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We can know this is true because Peter was there. We can know this is true because God spoke then and continues to speak through his word. We can know this is true because Peter and others wrote it all down. My friends, let us live out of this good news, first by refreshing our memory again and again to the truth of what we have been given in Christ. Let us pay attention to the word we have been given by being in the scriptures, reading, chewing on, and being shaped by the word of God given to us in the Bible. With open hearts and minds, may the gospel truth transform not only what we think, but also how we feel, how we exercise our will, how we act toward each other. And in a world overshadowed by darkness, May we live together in humble confidence as we wait for the dawn of the morning star, the truth of Jesus Christ, to rise in our hearts. Amen.